Science. Science Po. Welcome to Science Po's uh, podcast on environmental transformation. I'm Sergei Guriev, the host of the podcast. Uh, I'm provost at Science Po, and uh, today with me uh, I have uh, Charlotte Alpern, who is a tenured researcher at Science Po's Center on European Studies and Comparative Politics. Charlotte is one of our leading researchers on environmental transformation. She is actually in charge of our new uh, 10-year project of uh, transforming interdisciplinary education and research in evolving democracies. In that project, Charlotte will be leading the research and teaching on environmental transformation. Welcome to the podcast, Charlotte. Good afternoon, Sergei. Thank you very much for being with us. You work on various subjects related to environmental transformation, but most importantly on cities. Why are cities important? We know that today majority of population lives in cities, but other other aspects uh, that make us think more, make make us make a, a focus on uh, environmental transformation in cities. Sure. I think cities are extremely important to this conversation on environmental transformations for two different reasons. The first one is that they are directly contributing to the problem, in a sense, if we want to put it very briefly. They contribute to um, uh, gas emissions, uh, they contribute to carbon emissions, they produce uh, uh, tons of waste, they produce pollution. There are also issues related to uh, water pollution due to the overpopulated uh, um, cities in, and, and areas in those cities. So for lots of different reasons, cities are very much part of the problem. Um, but they also are part of the solution, and this is what uh, they have claimed to be. They have really, they really fought over the last 20 years to become part of the global conversation about how to address climate change, how to address mitigation, how to address adaptation challenges. First, because there are areas where um, a lot of knowledge concentrates, a lot of wealth too, um, but also where uh, the concentration of population, the concentration of um, um, ways to live together, of housing issues, of um, uh, accessibility issues to different types of infrastructure, different types of networks, makes it an ideal place to experiment to test new innovation, to think about forthcoming solutions that could then be um, um, uh, scaled up to other territories, other regions that uh, um, are less populated, or maybe more rural even. So in a sense, uh, the fact that they produce disproportionately more um, uh, waste and pollution that also creates this uh, feeling that the solution is also easier to achieve in cities rather than in other parts of the planet. And indeed, uh, all cities are different, and this is something that I've learned. I, I worked at uh, European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, and there we had a program of green cities where we would approach every city and ask the city to think about green strategy. What struck me, my main takeaway from this program was all cities have different issues, all cities have different problems and different solutions, and therefore it is important to look at cities separately, case by case. And in your research, you looked at several cities which are different cities in Europe, outside of Europe. So tell us uh, more about, uh, about this. What have you learned uh, from looking at different cities? 
Yes, absolutely. I think this is a very critical point um, of the work that I've been doing these past years is really to embrace the idea that there, will, there won't be a one-size-fits-all type of solution, that we need to take into account um, the differences between cities to have context-specific solutions. Um, however, we also need to think in terms of what are the similar challenges they face. And even if cities are very different across the world, they do face similar challenges. One of the key aspects that I've been working on in my research is the governance of those problems. How are they equipped in order to address uh, climate change issues? What do they know? What do they have in terms of human uh, resources, in terms of finances, in terms of um, uh, organizing and reaching out to uh, civil, uh, civil society, to uh, associations, NGOs, but also to working together with uh, business groups and all the different stakeholders that are going to be part of the solution. And in this particular respect, this is where the differences arise from one city to the other. So, for example, um, as part of my last project, I've been working on how to think about uh, sustainable pathway uh, towards sustainable mobility across different cities in Europe, looking at cities of very, very different uh, size and um, um, with different types of economic activities. So, for example, Antwerp, which is um, a large city in Flanders, in Belgium, um, which is also a port city, which has huge um, economic sector focusing on logistics, uh, on retail, uh, and there, part of the main challenge for the city of Antwerp is not just to think about their mobility related to passengers, but also for goods. So how do we create um, an overall approach, sort of um, large-scale approach to bring together those different types of concerns? If we look at another uh, uh, example, which is the case of Lucca, uh, in Italy, Lucca is a medium-sized city um, in uh, um, uh, Tuscany, in, in, the, in the region of Tuscany. And in Lucca, this is where we have quite a lot of um, tourism taking place there. So the largest share of the city's activity is based on tourism, where we have a floating population, which changes a lot during the winter and the summer, where you need to think about solutions in order to reduce carbon emissions in the mobility sector that will take into account those high-level variations between uh, seasons, but also try to address a volatile population which won't be traveling with their bikes all the time, which won't necessarily be um, coming with their hiking shoes. And then we need to think about solutions such as public transport, such as uh, renting, such as short-term uh, uh, mobility solutions in order to address that. So those are very, very small-scale examples, but I think they very well uh, reflect the types of thinking we need to have in each of those cities when thinking about uh, mobility uh, developments um, in relationship to climate change and to address their context-specific needs, both in terms of economics, but also in terms of um, um, what are their wealth, where are their strengths, what are their existing networks, and to develop some solutions that could then apply to them in the best possible way. Well, uh, in uh, big, uh, big cities and medium-sized cities, it's obvious that challenges are huge. You also studied small cities like Alba Iulia in Romania and Platanias in Crete. And some people would say in a small city, it's almost like a rural area. What are the environmental transformation challenges in the small city? What is the difference? However, the, the, the specific needs of the small cities are less addressed in those conversations. First, because of what you say, there's this assumption that there are less needs because uh, we're talking about 10,000 um, uh, inhabitant cities, so it's, it's a bit uh, less populated. However, in one of the cases that you mentioned, uh, Platanias in Crete, um, this is also one of those examples um, where we have very small population in winter, but a very large one uh, in the summer. So this is also where you have this seasonal uh, transformation taking place. 
This is also a city where you have large cruise boats uh, stopping every summer. So um, uh, thousands of tourists arriving every day, staying for one day or two, and where there are needs for basic infrastructure to be installed, such as uh, sidewalks. If you want to walk, you need to uh, build in uh, some um, uh, cycling lanes. We also need to think in terms of public transport. And we need to think about large-scale developments of network more generally for all issues related to uh, environmental resources and networks that will help and support the cities to face the challenges of the 21st century and more generally to uh, becoming climate neutral by 2050. And this is particularly relevant in small cities because they have not been the focus of attention of the national governments and they have not been the focus of attention of the European um, uh, union in this particular case. So no mandatory uh, regulation for them to adopt some specific uh, plans or specific policies in that regard. Um, they have less support to. Um, and in a context of a country where there have been some drastic uh, um, uh, rules being introduced after the 2008 financial crisis, we're also talking about major needs in terms of no needs of environmental transformation being long-term. All these problems take a lot of time. And, uh, of course, critics of democracy, and uh, we still talk about European democratic countries. Um, uh, we uh, have this cons concern that politicians care about the next election. As one of the politicians said, we know what needs to be done, but we have elections, so we sometimes have to make uh, compromises. To what extent there is, uh, there is an issue related to this? How can you um, assure that once a long-term strategy is developed, uh, there is a commitment to it independent of the calendar of elections. This is a critical point, especially for those of us who believe that um, environmental transformation uh, should take place in democratic regimes and should continue to do so in the future. Um, one of the um, uh, points that we have worked together with my colleagues from UCL as part of the SOMPLUS project, which is a EU-funded project, we, we very much thought in terms of um, how to combine those long-term planning strategies. So we're talking about 30 to 40 years time ahead, it's usually the 2050 um, um, uh, net carbon uh, emission goal, and how to combine it together with the, um, uh, well, we could say constraints in this case, but also the rules of any democracy that you should have some elections every five, six years, um, and most probably also some major political change taking place throughout the, the, the term. So on the one hand, um, in the methodology that we developed and the way we talked about it, there is one thing that should be defined, which is the vision of the city, where, where should it want to be in 30 to 40 years time? And in this case, it's one thing to say that you want to be uh, carbon neutral, but do you want to be carbon neutral and just? Do you want to be carbon neutral and attractive from an economic perspective? Do you want to be carbon neutral um, and uh, uh, healthy and think about the well-being of citizens? Those are different uh, framing, but they also relate to different political perspectives. And I guess the first uh, matter of attention for any city should be to think about where do they want to be in 30 to 40 years' time. So how to define you know, the end point, where do they want to be? How do they want to, to, to what do they want to become? And then the second aspect of it is what is the pathway that is going to lead them towards this end goal? And there, of course, there are two ways to think about it. Either you think about this pathway with the constraints of today, making it a very rigid trajectory, um, allowing for little flexibility or, or little readjustments. So if you want to get there in 30 to 40 years' time, what do we need to do during the five first years? What solutions do we already have? What planning should we put ahead in order to prepare for the years to come in terms of technological development, in terms of research development, in terms of um, um, training our staff, in terms of some small step 
that will eventually allow you to revise your strategy, depending, for example, on economic changes, depending on political changes, changing also the pandemic, for example, which we had an experience um, in the past three to four years in relationship with COVID-19. And this allows some level of flexibility while at the same time keeping your end goal in place. And this is, I guess, the challenge with climate change. You need to um, bring together this long-term planning with the short-term ones, allow for some flexibility for democratic and uh, deliberation uh, places to take place for some revision, but another way to think about how to get there. And this is a big challenge, not just for politicians, but also for uh, civil servants working in city administrations who need to be aware of the changes that might come along uh, in regard to politics and to think about methods and procedures and um, uh, reporting system that we also help the new majority to align to some extent with those priorities. You mentioned long-term strategies. Uh, as an economist, I know that for that you need money. And if you look uh, for the investment demands uh, for achieving net zero in uh, less than 30 years and achieving SDG, Sustainable Development Goals, in 2030, we need amounts of money that public players just mm. don't have. You mentioned Greece, but it's not only Greece. All governments, all international organizations together cannot mobilize as much uh, money as we need. So private sector probably also needs to contribute. What is the role of private sector actors? What can we do about them? Private sector and private actors um, have always been um, quite central uh, in my research, and I've always taken them into account when thinking about public policy making, uh, in the sense that um, uh, it requires uh, some sort of, in the different cities that I've been working in over the past um, years, is that there are um, different ways to think about financing and uh, funding possibilities. Some of them are very much public-public and they bring together different levels of government where um, there are some um, um, uh, solutions to think about the development of networks or the maintenance of networks. In large number of cases, you would also have some public-private um, dimensions being brought in um, where um, th there would be some interest for uh, private uh, um, finances to come into uh, the, the project in order to support, for example, the development um, of uh, uh, joint platforms in order to think about new services and new mobility services. We can think about water services, we can think about uh, waste management. So there are lots of areas actually in cities where you already have some public-private um, uh, fundings. And I guess here, one of the key issues for the public sector is to find and think about a way to regulate and how much they want to be involved, not just in the way uh, those policies are being designed, but also in the way they are going to be implemented. And this is where we find some variations from one city to the other on different models. Um, so if we think about the platform economy in relationship to mobility services, for example, we have some um, systems that were very much developed within the public sector in the case of Antwerp that I mentioned before. So it's very much a municipal-led platform. However, within that, they have been working together with the private sector in order to support and to promote their um, uh, innovations for new technologies, for new systems, for new solutions, specific niche. But how can they be uh, of use to other parts of the city, maybe less developed or um, cities where you have a much lower income population living? And this is uh, part of the challenge for those uh, entirely funded by the private sector types of initiatives. Talking about other actors, you already mentioned civil society. What is the role of uh, civil society in this transition? What can citizens do? And how different cities involve civil society in the environmental transformation? Um, 
Well, they do lots of different things, and I guess mm -hmm. one of the one of the things that we uh, we we hear them a lot is that there is, of course, a lot of a lot of protest. There has been a lot of demonstrations, a lot of um, demands that were voiced um, uh, on the streets um, in order to push for. Um, either a much more ambitious agenda. This is what we heard with the marches for climate, for example, demonstration for climate. We had uh, lots of mobilizations from groups such as Extinct Rebellion. We had uh, different types of associations you know, pl playing this, this big role um, in the streets. Um, we can also think about um, uh, private um, um, residents and uh, citizens um, who are demonstrating against some of the measures. And I think this is also something that we should think about. So in terms of how... Um, civil society is mobilizing um, in relation to climate change. In my research, is so that in some cities you would have those that are pro, those that are against. So it's, it's very much a debate also taking place in civil society. So the work that has to be done uh, in relationship to, to those demands, those claims, um, if you think from, a, uh, from the perspective of a, of a city government, is to think about ways to reach out to those particular actors. Um, and, some, and cities are not very well equipped or not equipped on the same level in order to reach out to the civil societies. Some of them have developed some co-construction, uh, co-development, uh, collaborative uh, places where uh, they would uh, discuss and think and design uh, different types of policies and also the measures in order to implement them. In some other cases, it goes through some uh, e-services, some um, uh, new technologies that help uh, uh, bring together uh, the demands coming from uh, the citizens and different groups of citizens. And then there are ways or cities which would rather go group by group and try to segment a little bit each conversation taking place to look at the users, to look at the beneficiaries, to also look at the target groups and to think differently about how to micromanage, in a sense, mm -hmm. uh, the different ways through which those groups can be reached out to and uh, engaged into this more uh, long-term debate. Talking about this governance of various players. Ten years ago was to think about um, uh, how to reduce um, uh, the role of the car and um, uh, access by car to the city centre, where they had a lot of tourists taking place, but also retail activities. Um, and they tried to think about ways to bring those different populations on board. Um, and they created what they called the roundtables, logistics and urban logistics, um, which was at first organized on a very informal basis uh, every year uh, in which the city would uh, talk together with uh, major industry players, but also shopkeepers and all the different uh, uh, actors in this uh, conversation, bring them around the table and discuss about their challenges and needs. And this is where they realized that they actually knew very little about one another. They knew very little about who they were, uh, the population of firms living in that city. They knew quite little about their needs, about what were the specific constraints, whether they needed to have traffic by night, by day. So just expanding a little bit on that example, but just to give a little bit of a um, some, some sense about the, the kind of knowledge they gained by talking uh, together. And progressively, uh, this um, roundtable experiment was uh, formalized, was institutionalized uh, through the Chamber of Commerce, through the Chamber of Trade, and it has now become a sort of yearly rendezvous uh, between the city um, and the different uh, uh, departments within the city, not just with representatives from the retail sector, but from different representatives, different economic groups in the city to think about how to reduce travel 
and travel demand by car in the city centre. And this conversation, which started on an experimental basis, was later on developed, and they are now trying to reach out to the province authority and to the regional authority in order to also discuss um, issues pertaining to railway systems, to logistics at the regional level, and to think about this in a much more integrated perspective at the regional level. When we talk about the role of cars getting to the uh, city center, and Luca is a very specific example where you actually have a fortress. You have the walled uh, city center, so it's really visible when you talk about travel from suburbs to the city. The question arises always, uh, what is the relationship between city center and the suburbs? Shouldn't we talk more about suburbs rather than cities? Because these are the suburbs these are which are uh, the focus of... Uh, uh, issues related to urban mobility. To what extent this is uh, also is uh, uh, part of your research agenda? Yeah, this is this is a major challenge for um, a lot of cities in Europe, um, and not just in Europe. I think be beyond uh, the European context, this is really something that a lot of cities are struggling with. Um, what I found in my own research is that part of the struggle comes with the fact that there is no solution or existing solution for having this kind of coordination within the national framework, especially for large cities. A lot of national governments are very afraid of their capital cities or large cities, you know, building this metropolitan area. And one day, the mayor of this particular city challenging them for national elections. And we saw that happening. You know, if we think about um, Tony Blair, we can think about uh, different... Uh, um, Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson, yes, exactly. Sorry. Just, Jacques Chirac. Uh, Jacques Chirac, mm -hmm. absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, and we can think about other examples uh, that have been particularly uh, particularly challenging for, for national governments. So the first thing is to know whether or not there is some formal um, uh, institutional solution in order for uh, some solutions to be developed jointly between the core urban area on an institutional level together with all the different municipalities around. This is a first, uh, first point. However, and we know this from the work done by the OECD, for example, which has done this large benchmark study to look at how those cooperations could be taking place, we know that some soft coordination mechanisms can also be introduced. And in Europe, we have lots of experience around that. And this is one of the things that I've been looking at in my work with the case of Antwerp, where the city of Antwerp started with sort of informal conversation taking place with some 30 or more cities and municipalities uh, uh, around uh, Antwerp to develop some joint solution uh, that had to do with uh, environmental transformation. So it could have to do with uh, nature protection, for example, with water resources um, and with mobility at some point where the Flemish government uh, imposed a sort of metropolitan framework. So this is the first one. The second level is then to think about joint solutions that make sense in densely populated areas, but also in much more, um, uh, in much more disseminated, diffuse, where you have more um, 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 different type um, of uh, built environments, so more individual houses, for example, which is much more uh, spread um, types of urban planning. In this particular case, you couldn't have a large-scale uh, metro, for example, or a, um, uh, a bus system. So we need to think about different types of solutions different types of mobility patterns, different kinds of access to uh, uh, waste management, different types of solutions that maybe could be less, more low scale, that could be uh, more integrated into what is being achieved um, at a more regional level rather than at the, local, uh, at the, at the center of the city. And so in my research, the work we've been doing is to help cities both think in terms of how to build this cooperation 
with the neighboring and adjacent cities and to uh, think about uh, uh, and drawing on examples that are existing in the literature and some examples that have already proven to be quite interesting uh, to look at and where they could get some experience and knowledge from and draw some lessons from those experiences. But also been working with some cities that um, already have this structure in place, but still find it very difficult to actually get to develop some practical solutions on the ground because then they come into very practical issues. How are we going to finance them? Where are we going to locate them? And this is where we go again into some of what we discussed um, uh, a little while ago uh, with uh, reaching out to those um, uh, specific uh, civil uh, society groups. If somebody would ask you to name a number of uh, good examples on which there is a consensus in the academic literature, these are the cities which have done this well, which addressed this uh, challenge well, you would name which cities? I think one of the cities in the context of Europe that are always um, put forward as good examples are German cities because they have this sort of association, Verbände, uh, which makes it um, um, uh, quite informal. It's sort of informal cooperation mechanisms where you build a functional area uh, but where politicians still remain in charge of the decisions that have to go with their own city. So it is not as integrated as building a metropolitan area, uh, which has been the case in Lyon, for example, or which you would also find uh, in a city such as Manchester uh, in the UK, which are also often quoted as best practical examples but of metropolitan areas. If we think beyond the case of Europe, we would find some uh, examples uh, uh, in which uh, uh, cities are still struggling with either to bring everything under the same roof. So this has been the case in Mumbai, for example, have done some examples. I'm not sure it's a best practice, but it is very often uh, quoted as being an example um, of how to bring things together under the umbrella of a similar uh, uh, metropolitan uh, uh, governance uh, regime, but still remaining with two-tiered where you still have some level of decision-making that uh, remain at the level of the municipality. And I guess this is what the main argument is about. Do you want to uh, um, you know, um, devolve your power to a new, uh, a new uh, uh, institution? Or is it about dividing between the functional aspects while retaining the political power and the political accountability as well? I can imagine that now with all kinds of new data you can collect, uh, even when you have an enormous... Uh, amount of um, informal activity, you can still see, you can ask for data from uh, mobile operators, you can look at uh, satellite imagery, so you can actually understand the dynamics of urban development and therefore inform yourself. Is that is that a qualitative change right now? So the governments now have much better data, or city governments uh, have much better data that allow them to understand the challenges, even if uh, much activity is happening under the taxman screen in the informal sector? Yes, I think this is definitely something that um, has made quite a difference over the past um, decade. There is much more data and um, they can be much better informed. However, uh, the analytics of the data is something which, uh, uh, um, which is one of the dimensions where there still are some major differences from one city to the other and where some city governments still remain quite dependent from uh, private consultancy offices or from uh, um, uh, development agencies, which doesn't, so it's, I'm not saying it's a problem per se or that there shouldn't be some cooperation taking place between those cities, but it means that at the end of the day, the city government is not always able to think, to develop, to implement um, quite autonomously 
the solutions that would be best fitting for his territory. So they, they remain dependent from those areas. And we know from the experience that we had uh, in other cities around the world that one of the key aspects for some cities in order to best address the challenges that come with long-term transformations is that they do need, at some point, to equip themselves to become more autonomous from the national government in order to develop their own data, but also to understand it and to bring it into the knowledge for policymaking that would develop. You mentioned the demand for mobility. You mentioned e-medicine as a part of a solution. Mm -hmm. I guess in, uh, in all the recent COPs, uh, people have been thinking about the lessons from pandemic, where we all moved online, and uh, that, of course, uh, decreased uh, demand for mobility. Are there positive lessons to draw from COVID and indeed think about certain things which can stay in line, uh, working from home, all other solutions that can reduce demand for mobility. Is that uh, something that uh, we can actually use as a takeaway from the last uh, two or three years? Yes, absolutely. Because during the, during the time of COVID, um, there were a drastic change in mobility patterns because everyone's staying at home and being grounded uh, in their homes. And this was this has been a sort of large-scale experiment with uh, measures that had been discussed in the past but never tested on a large scale. Um, and in some cities, not all of them, um, they have been measuring this very carefully in order to understand, on the one hand, what was the added value Rich, and now leading some discussions uh, with uh, large firms uh, or smaller firms in order to know whether and how it had impacted uh, travel home uh, um, home. Um, uh, work uh, travels. Uh, they are also talking uh, with schools. They're also talking with lots of different actors uh, at city level in order to make sense of what happened, in order to uh, uh, also see how it has readjusted following COVID. And within your um, uh, political committee or political council for having this uh, uh, cross-sectoral uh, discussions. And this is also something that a lot of politicians are, are missing. And maybe the third point is to make sure to reach out to the stakeholders, stakeholders both within the city uh, level, so private sector, uh, citizens um, and, and residents, um, but also outside of the city. A city is not an island. It needs to talk to its neighbours, it needs to talk to its national governments, to its regional government, in order to make sure that some of the solutions that are being introduced do not feel like being within a fortress. We had the Luca case uh, before. Uh, but that they can also spread out towards the suburbs, towards the outer suburbs, and that they actually can scale up and help also, in a transformative way, the entire uh, national uh, territory to change. So those would be the three aspects. Thank you very much. That was uh, Charlotte Halpern. Uh, that was our first episode of the Science Post podcast on environmental transformation. Please come back for more. In the following episodes, we'll talk to other researchers at Science Po uh, working on environmental transformation. Goodbye. Bye. Thank you, Sergei. Thank you. <laughs>